0: So, any business, you're going to have problems every day, right? There's the sky is falling, terrible things, and you're really good entrepreneurs. They always are focused on the solution, right? And so they don't get stuck and lost in the problem. I mean, you need to understand your problem really well if you're going to have a solution, but you are always going to be in a situation where you are not able to keep up with with all the things that are coming at you every day. So, what are the solutions that really matter? If you can nail those, then your business can, you know, other things can go wrong and you'll still be okay.
1: Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our next guest, Brad Chisholm, is the co-founder and former CEO of Dyne Technologies, a MEMS inertial sensor company that was acquired by Google. Currently, Brad is the co-founder and CEO of The Launch Factory, a startup studio in San Diego, California. In this interview, Brad and I talk about his own entrepreneurial journey and his unique approach to sourcing and launching talented entrepreneurs to start great companies. Please enjoy this conversation with Brad Chisholm. Well Brad, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to Impactor.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so You're an engineer, just found out that you're also, part of your journey was at San Diego State, where my good friend is a professor, Alex DeNoble. After university, you worked for several companies, including the U.S. Space and Naval Warfare Defense Systems Command, which is SPAWAR, and were co-founder of Lumadine Technologies, and that's a MEMS inertial sensor company, a mouthful. So I'm not an engineer. So I'm not, I did a little research trying to understand that whole field and didn't get much past uh, miniaturation and a few other <laughs> keywords that made sense to me. Can you tell us a little bit about your pathway to entrepreneurship and what the heck is inertial sensor, a MEMS inertial sensor, no less?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I was, you know, undergrad was engineering and math. And, and so I went into the field and I had all intentions of staying there, but a few years in I realized that I was a closet entrepreneur. And so but there was a problem, which was I knew nothing about business. And I, I started to realize just how little I knew about business because I would I come up with a business idea and then I would go look into how things were done. And basically it became clear really fast that I wasn't going to even be able to quantify if I had a good idea not very well anyway. Mm-hmm. And and on top of that, even if I did have a good idea, I wasn't sure what to do. You know, mm-hmm. I, I learned there's different ways, like you have a C corporation, an S corporation, an LLC, and, and limited partnerships, like all this was just very overwhelming. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe I need to go get an MBA as a way to just start to know a little bit more about business. And at the same time, while I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I didn't really have the confidence. You know, I, I knew that I, didn't know how to, you know, didn't know what to do. So an MBA was a kind of a way that I could also see if this was really a path for me. And so I was working at, working for the Navy at that time and taking classes at night. And that's, that's where I met Alex Denoble, who, mm-hmm. who you're talking about previously. And, but I took a class called entrepreneurship and the professor was Giles Bateman. He was the number three co-founder of Price Club. Mm-hmm. And at the, the first of the semester, he asked everybody a question, which was who here wants to be an entrepreneur? So 14 people said they wanted to be an entrepreneur, two people said no, and I said maybe. On the very last day of the semester, he did the survey again, and about half the yeses had gone to no, and the noes stayed no, and I went from a maybe to a yes, and I would argue that I didn't do a survey, right? so I don't really know for sure, but I would argue that the reason the yeses turned to noes was the same reason my maybe went to a yes, Mm -hmm. and it works like this. He did a good job of articulating the entrepreneurial experience. You know, so so, what does it really mean to be an entrepreneur? Not the hyped up version and the romantic story tale version. Of right, it, so what is right. Actually, like, and in that, there's two lessons. One was you don't actually have what it takes as an individual to willpower a company to success. And when you think about it, this logically makes sense. You don't get to control market conditions. You don't get to control what your competition does. You don't even get to control who works for you. You get to influence that. But you don't get control of, a, of so many of these variables. Therefore, by yourself, you can't get it done. So for me, this was actually reassuring because I already knew I couldn't get it done. And so if if as far as just on my own merit, so this means that if other people can be successful and go forward and do it, and maybe I have a chance too. There is a second lesson that he taught that was critically important, which is there will be people that will come along and help you on your journey. People that you may not have met yet, people that you won't imagine even you know showing up. In, no matter how many different you know scenarios you play out in your mind, but they will be there, and those people are going to help determine your success. So it's very much of a leap of faith, right? That you need to just take the jump, and you need to realize that it's going to be bigger than something bigger than yourself. And when you see this help come along, you need to be willing to embrace it. So I think that made some people very uncomfortable. He taught this in a very convincing way. And while I wouldn't go so far as saying it made me comfortable, but it, it certainly made me realize, you know what, this is something I can do. That's what got me to go pursue being an entrepreneur. For your other question, what is a mems based inertial sensor? So, so this was a technology I was working on as an engineer at the Navy, and it turned out the inventor had entrepreneurial aspirations himself. And so, so this is a technology to make accelerometers and gyroscopes. Mm-hmm. So you, so these are, you have, at the time, you know, there weren't Excels and Gyros and cell phones. Now everybody owns dozens of them. And so this was a new way to build these types of sensors. And so we licensed the technology from the Navy, built a company around that, started off with industrial applications, and then ultimately ended up pivoting into consumer. It's led to us being acquired by Google in the very end of 2014.
1: Yeah. So I really love your story and and some of the things you talked about, because I think having worked with a lot of students and a lot of nascent and wannabe entrepreneurs, there is this sort of myth, this idea that, you know, this is kind of a rock star solitary journey, right? And what I'm hearing from you is that one of the things that you had, which I think is really important for an entrepreneur, is you understood that there was a lot you didn't know but i guess with your professor i think you said his name was giles which happens to be my husband's name by the way it's an unusual name but you took comfort in the fact that there was an opportunity to learn all this along the way and i think that's one thing entrepreneurs need to understand is that it's really a learning journey as much as anything else every day you get up and there's something new to learn so i really like that now you said you started the company i think in 2006 sold it in 14 one of the things I do know is that getting a company scaled and to the point of selling it is a lot of work. So could you talk a little bit about that whole process? So you you had a partner in this. You were co-founders, and mm-hmm. he had originally worked on the technology. You licensed it from the government, right? And so talk through and explain to our listeners how that all worked and how you were able to build this. And And I guess the other question I have as you talk about that is, was Google a target or was an exit a target right away? Did you know where you were headed in terms of the exit?
0: So we started off, when we first started off, consumer products were not on our radar screen. Mm-hmm. There, weren't, there weren't outside of, I think the only consumer product for, with any kind of volume at that point was your washing machine well, and our airbag sensors. And so we were And the value proposition of our technology was that it was high performance relative to its size where most consumers, it's just all about cost and power. So we are going after industrial applications that were used to paying hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per sensor, and we could give them the same thing for tens of dollars and at a smaller form factor. We started off, so this is a, actually a good example of when someone you wouldn't expect comes and helps you out on your journey. So we were we started off looking to go after the oil and gas industry for seismic imaging. So accelerometers used as miniature seismometers to do images of what's underneath the earth. And then they somehow figure out where to drill based off of that. So we actually had a contract with a company out of Houston that they were, they started paying us to, to investigate whether or not a joint development project would make sense. So the idea being that they pay for us to develop a sensor. And then in that space, we only sell it to them. And we negotiated up to about a $3 million contract. And we hadn't even been, our company was only a year old at this point. So this was phenomenal. I had saved up to go for, 12 months without salary, we're at month 10. And so this was gonna be whew, okay. We can I can start taking you
1: can get paid and, again. Yeah.
0: yeah. A lot of things came together at the same time. So one, I was finishing my MBA doing business plan competitions, and by chance, I had a business plan competition. I was going to the first one was at Rice University. So, and that's the same town as as this company we were negotiating with. So the competition and the signing date were the same week. And I also happened to be running the flu that week, and this was back when, if you were sick, you just took medicine and toughed it out. You did not.
1: Right, <laughs> don't do that today.
0: <laughs> it's, I mean, based off today's standard, that just seems, you know, crazy that I would do such a thing, right? But so here I am, you know, with my 102 degree fever. You know, I making sure that I could no one. I didn't look sick, right? Like, but it was. I go do the first first round of the business plan competition, we did okay. And then i get on the phone and with the company and they end up pulling the contract. So on signing day, they changed their minds and pulled the contract. So mm. I went from having a presentation that said, you know, $3 million contract pending, and then having to go present the next day with that slide missing. And you know, the presentation didn't go as well. Right. We <laughs> but this was devastating, right? Because we didn't have a plan B and and I only and I was running out of money. I was newly married and my wife was in med school so that was promising for the future but not good for the present day bills. Right. And a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Cash not.
1: flow issue, right? <laughs> Classic.
0: So I end up talking to one of the judges that that had sat in the session and he ends up offering to give me CEO level introduction to everybody else in the space because he tells me he goes when I told him we lost the contract he said you know, well, maybe this is for the best. And I'm like, you and I have very different definitions of the word best, if you think this is for the best. I didn't actually say that out loud. It's just what I was thinking in my head. But but he offers to give me CEO level introduction to anyone else in the, everyone, because it turns out he was the CEO of a software company that sold to everybody in that space. Wow. And his name was Dan Piet. And you know, he couldn't take compensation because he was on the board of directors of one of the companies he was introducing us to. So we were able to, take that and, and put ourselves into a competitive bidding competition, right? So what we did was we went to everybody in the space and we said, you know what, this is your time period for due diligence if you're interested, but we're going to sell field abuse exclusivity of our technology into your space to the highest bidder. And here's our dates and timeframes, which was incredibly nerve wracking to do. But we, sure. we set up this plan, but none of it would have worked if we didn't have Dan just magically providing introductions, Right. Right? So that's to me like the most dramatic example of an outside person that literally 24 hours after we lost our $3 million contract, he walks in and offers me the CEO level introduction. And I had only met him. And I'd only, at that point, I'd only known him for 12 hours.
1: You were a student at the time, right? Or were I was a yeah.
0: student at SDSU, and so I'm, you know, doing the nighttime MBA thing, right? So,
1: because what's interesting about that, and the point that I'd like to make about that is that I think a lot of students don't realize what kind of opportunity they have while they are in school. Sometimes those things go away, but I, I'm familiar with Brad Burke and Rice's competition, and and that which is a great competition, and that's why I knew you were probably still in school. But as a student, people do that all the time. I've seen it if they, I mean, that's a pretty incredible, I mean, it happens to others as well, but while you're a student, you really should take advantage of those networks. 100%
0: agree. And, you know, I had, there's one guy, he was a year ahead of me in the MBA program. His name was Dan Nagel. And he told me that the worst thing he ever did, worst business decision he ever made was to graduate. Because, (laughs) you know, because he was an entrepreneur himself. And the resources you have through the university are tremendous. And on top of that, if you're trying to do due diligence, if you want to go talk to you know, either customers or competitors, and you do it as a student, you will get a lot more, people will be a lot more willing to talk to you than if they think you're going to try to sell them something.
1: Right, right. right.
0: And so I actually use my MBA program as the incubator for the or the, the business concept every class starting with Alex denoble that I would go and ask you know, for our projects and I use this technology and 100 of them always said yes and so that really allowed me to explore this business before actually going forward with it which was which was tremendous right so yeah but yeah so that ended up leading to how we got the bulk of our funding that partner we had there ion geophysical funded us about 17 million dollars over the next several years. And you know it was a good relationship. It had its ups and downs, but it was a good relationship. What ended up happening though was they their business pivoted and they got out of the space that we were building a sensor for. So while they wished us well, they they weren't they weren't doing that anymore. And then at the same time, the oil industry was in the toilet, kind of like it is now. So it wasn't a good time to go be picked up by another partner. So what we did is we did a lot of we did a lot of checking to see if we could move into consumer. And from a technology point of view, we could. We just needed some money. So we went and got a bunch of investor dollars and pivoted over to consumer, but knew we knew that entering the consumer space is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to manu- manufacture component hardware for a consumer, this means you're churning out incredibly large volumes. All of these parts have to work. You have to be your specifications have to be really tight. Basically it's a very hard business and we weren't equipped for that. Our solution was, okay, well, let's go and get a strategic partner. Now, For some companies, that means get acquired, right? Uh They're not going to partner with a startup company, but they certainly would acquire. So So starting in 2013, I spent a lot of time, had a lot of help with this, but just trying to network to decision makers for the types of companies in the consumer space that would be interested in acquiring us. And so this was everything from your largest semiconductor companies who are component suppliers to companies that were more on the use of the technology side. And it also included folks in the automotive space. And just, we, we ended up with about a dozen very, very large companies that were interested in working with us. And so one of the companies that was not on the list was Google. So we started our process just like we did before. It was the oil and gas space where we, we had all of our dates. We had all of our contacts. And I just, I contacted everybody and I said, you know, we, we can only work with one partner. If you're interested, you know, let us know by this date. And we had a bunch of meetings. Also super nerve-wracking because now these are billion-dollar companies instead of hundreds of millions in terms of size. And their due diligence was a lot more thorough. So we Mm -hmm. were our engineers were working really, really hard. But it worked. What ended up happening, though, was Ion, at this point, this former CEO of Ion, he had retired. And he was at a networking event and happens to meet one of the senior managers at Google, tells him about us. And Google, I ended up getting a meeting with Google in July. We had announced our process in June. And we had told everybody term sheets by mid-August. Now, everyone else had already spent some time knowing our technology, but Google first meeting in July, they actually jumped the line and got a term sheet to us before everybody else. Wow. So it was one of these things that I had told my board of directors, I said, so if anyone submits a term sheet early, you know, I wanted to have a plan. So these things are very nerve wracking, right? So at least they are for me. So the way I deal with that is I have plan. I plan out what I'm going to do when I'm not in the moment, so that when I am in the moment, I act rationally and not emotionally. Mm -hmm. So my plan was, if someone gives an offer early, I said I'm going to turn it down, and they said, well, no. What you should do is we have a meeting about it and we discuss it. I said, no. I'm going to turn it down, and here's why. That's a free ask. I can say no, then I go tell you about it, and we wait to see if they come back with something bigger. Because if these are professional negotiators, they're not going to give me their best offer right out of the
1: gate. Right out. Yeah, exactly.
0: But then if they don't come back, then you can overrule my decision as board of directors. And I can go back with my tail between my legs and apologize and say, we'd like to accept your offer. At that point, they just won the negotiation. So it gives an opportunity to see if there's anything more on the table. And, and mm-hmm. it actually worked out quite well. I have to say though, <laughs> when it came time to implement that plan, I barely could do it. Fortunately, I had a <laughs> speakerphone because my hands were were shaking so bad I couldn't even hold the the phone receiver and I was really glad it was by phone that we were doing this. But it all worked out quite well. So, you know, Google was not one of our targets getting acquired by somebody by one of the large companies in the tech space was. We just we just hadn't identified that it was
1: Which one? Yeah, yeah. So wow, where, where did you learn your negotiation skills? Is this something that just, you know, your strategy? Is this something that that you came up with? I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. Or is it, or were you advised? I mean, did, did you have mentors well, and people that helped you along the way figure a lot of this out?
0: Yeah, absolutely, but there's almost nothing that we did at, at Luminine that was all me and except for maybe some of the mistakes. So there's a number of ways so when it can't what, Usually I was maybe the owner of coming up with a strategy kind of a thing as a CEO, but but sure. we I had some really strong people on my board of directors. They were available to me not just on the quarterly board meetings, but we would meet, you know, in between and they really helped craft the strategy and also and also helped implement it. So Kim Patashna was on my board. He was instrumental in getting a lot of the network contacts. And then also he would even join me in meetings when it would made sense to do so. And so so I had people like him and I had people like him. It was a team effort to make this happen. It's also really important when you're doing something that's ambitious and bold, you need to be confident about it. And having a group with you really helps with that confidence.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Some of the advice also came from unlikely sources. So if you look at his resume, you're not surprised he would come up with genius business ideas, right? But one of the things my wife and I used to do at that time, we'd go for these really long walks. So we'd go for a walk. It might be 20 miles. It'd take us all day right? And he really is always fun for us because you really see things in a different way when you walk through several neighborhoods and all of that. But that's when we would talk. And so she would be my sounding board and I just would, you know, kind of test things out on her and she would react, you know, and she's not a business person, but she's smart and she has common sense. And if I can get, you know, so a lot of the thinking, the strategy of the things that I brought to the table actually came out of those conversations, but the whole strategy together yeah, it was put together by our advisory board. I mean, even small things that are not actually small. But when you're going to go to the big companies and you're going to give them a timeline, you need to think about durations of time that are short enough to keep their attention, but not so short that they can't operate and make decisions. Well, how do you know what those are if you've never worked in senior management for one of those companies? You know, so so that was there are things like that that advisors can tell you. And so that allowed us to orchestrate this really, you know, carefully built plan and implement it because it was based and validated by people who really understood what they were talking about.
1: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, it, you know, especially as, as, as a startup, but probably all, you know, throughout our careers, the value of listening and the value of being humble enough to take advice from an input, even if you don't use it all the time from a lot of different sources, they can really help, and you know the the walking. There's been a lot of research around you know the impact of getting out and doing something physically repetitive like that, and how that can free up our minds. And so the walking and the talking I find fascinating. That's I really like that part of your story. So it doesn't sound like to me that this was a lone journey. So you know the idea of a lone entrepreneur is probably not one that's part of your story. It's, it's been a team effort and there's been a lot of people on that journey along the way with you, I guess. So you've probably learned a lot about how to read people and even a lot about yourself in this entire journey.
0: Yeah. I would say, you know, that if you were, I learned more as being an entrepreneur and got more and more in terms of just life experience because, you know, not everything was positive. Right. So, But you you grow more as a person by being an entrepreneur, at least I did, than versus anything else that I've done. So it's incredibly valuable in that regard. It's also something that, you know, to me, the way I look at things, you know, you only get to live once. So while you're here, you know, what do you want to do? And being an entrepreneur is an opportunity to be something, to be part of something, and even heavily influential in something that's a lot bigger than yourself. And to me, that's a really exciting, fulfilling way to live versus if you do something and it's only about your accomplishments and what you do, then it's going to be a lot smaller. And that doesn't mean it's not insignificant. You know, It, it still can have value and relevance. But it, there's something a little sad about that to me because you had more potential if you could have worked with other, if you would have could have and would have worked with other people. Mm-hmm. And so I really do not like what I call the the myth of the lone entrepreneur because I bought into that myth. And that was part of the reason why I was so hesitant to become an entrepreneur, because I'm thinking, well, if you have to be one of these rock stars, I'm not that guy. So how many really good entrepreneurs didn't take the plunge because they bought into that myth? Or how many people could have done a really good job as an entrepreneur but because they thought that they had to do it all on their own? yeah, you know, They didn't want to take help from others because they felt like that was a weakness or, or something along those lines you know, how how many of those people could have done something really special and impactful that we don't see today?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I really don't like this self-made man, soul myth of the lone entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember there's a quote, it goes something like, you know, anything worth doing, it's not Mm -hmm. going to be a solitary effort. You know, that almost everything that we do involves other people and entrepreneurship is a relationships and people effort, I think. So, You have kind of, you sold the company in 2014, and since that time, you launched something called the Launch Factory, I think in 2018, so a few years ago, and it's unique in a lot of ways because you're bringing together ideas with uh, entrepreneurs. So could you tell us a little bit about how the Launch Factory works and why you started it?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, so I think like a lot of people that have gone down the entrepreneurial path, you know, once you go down that path and that's kind of all well, what you always want to do, right? So after the exit you know, I, to Google, you know, part of the deal was that I would go work for Google for a little while. And so I did that, you know, Google is a great place to work, but because I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, I wasn't going to stay. Mm-hmm. And that that's pretty common actually with entrepreneurs. Like, you know. So anyway, but I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And so, so I spent a lot of time, you know, just like before the first time around trying to come up with my own idea, but I figured... You know, while I'm waiting for the light bulb to turn on, maybe, you know, because yeah, I did a lot of reflecting of what went well and what didn't go well in the Luminine days. And you know, the part that made me uncomfortable was the amount of luck that was required. So the whole concept of meeting Dan Piet in the, in the you know, just randomly, you know, and so, so while I will always be appreciative of Dan and I wouldn't go back and change everything, did I really want to get into a situation where I needed to you know, hope that was going to happen again, or those types of things were going to happen again. I wanted to try to create a situation where it's not so random that those types of things, you reduce the luck factor, Mm -hmm. which is not the same thing as reducing the dependence on others. It's just reducing the fact that you didn't, that these things didn't happen with your, without any influence or on your part. So that was, so I'm looking at it. And and at the same time you do the research, if you look at why startup companies fail, it's almost never because of the technology not working. I mean, it does happen right? By and large, they fail for business reasons, Yep. which, yep. you know, okay, they're a business. So if you fail as a business, it probably is for business reasons. But when you're a tech entrepreneur, you know, you often don't think of it that way. You think of it as if this technology works, people will love it. Business becomes great. And mm-hmm. the reality is if you really are trying to build a tech business. You need to build a business and not forget the business side of things. And so, so we started doing some research. How do you build strong technology? businesses. And so we start looking at what are the causes of failure and how do we reduce those from happening? And, And it turns out that a lot of the big mistakes for startup companies happen right out of the gates. They don't test their idea well enough. They don't do enough upfront due diligence. And once you've started the business, you're usually so busy that you have a hard time identifying whatever the shortcomings are between your product and the market those types of things. So if you can start off on the right foot, you have a tremendous advantage. And so we decided, okay, well, that means we need to do the due diligence on these ideas. And we need to do it in a way that is greater than what your typical angel investor group or incubator has the capacity to do, just simply do the And so now you start looking at it from an economics perspective and all of that. So we start with the due diligence and then we go and we look for the founders. And I, I knew as a founder that was not responsible for the idea that you can get just as passionate about somebody else's idea as those that are passionate about their own. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is you go look at any startup company, there's usually only one person that had the idea, but there's a whole team of people there that are really passionate about it. So, you know, so we thought, okay, now we need to go find the best entrepreneurs we can. Now. The problem with finding really great entrepreneurs is how do you spot them? I mean, a traditional job interview to find an entrepreneur is not going to have a high enough success rate. Right, right. The most important thing to get right are the entrepreneurs. So what we did was we said, OK, well, what does work for finding good talent? Well, what does work is if you ask people to demonstrate what they can do versus ask them what they can do. Right, Demonstrate versus the talking. And then another part of this is if you're asking people to demonstrate. Then you don't need to pre-screen based off resumes or if they went to a strong academic institution and they learned from it, then they're going to shine better in the in when they actually go demonstrate what they can do. So this also ended up being a way that we can filter out our whatever biases we have internal to launch factor. And so the way this happens is we bring in founders they're in, in pairs, we pair them up if they don't join us by pairs, but they demonstrate to us each part of the business. So what is the go-to-market strategy that they would do with the business? Because we give them the high-level idea and the due diligence work that we've done.
1: Now, when you so say look, demonstrate, are they actually working on the business or are they doing something similar to a case study kind of? Probably
0: closer to the case study. What they're doing is they're demonstrating their vision for the business.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So,
0: so, cause you know, any business idea can be implemented a number of different ways. And we want to see that they can implement in a way that's tailored to their strengths and everything else. But at the beginning, there's a lot of people in this process, and we don't actually, we will see the people, but they all the submissions are by a team name. And, mm-hmm. it is, and it's, we do this because this way we can't connect the visual of the person or the, or the experience talking to the person with the submission. We get our first impression based off the work they can deliver. Then after we're about halfway through, we start meeting with the candidates and the pool has also been reduced significantly by that point. We start meeting with them, but now we've already formed our first impression. So so this way, what we are doing is we're trying to make everything merit-based because this allows us a bigger pool to pull from. At the end of the day, our goal is to get the best talent. We don't want to artificially limit the size of the pool and screen the good candidates out. So we do this and then when we get down to our final, we get down to the final selection, we bring in outside judges to help us with this. We'll bring in outside investors, so local angel groups, we'll send representatives, you know, people that have seen thousands of pitches, and they serve as the judges for the final three teams before we make our final selection. And then we put in 300000 dollars of seed capital. And we do part of the reason we do that, you know, I I ended up going three years without taking a salary when I started my first company. I had saved up for one year. I was able to stretch it into three. Because with those business plan competitions we spoke about earlier, Mm -hmm. well, they give out cash prizes. And while we didn't do all that well at Rice, I ended up making like $75,000 in business plan winnings. And Mm -hmm. when you you are willing to belt tight and you can stretch that out, right? So so that gave me an extra two years of living expenses. But what if I hadn't saved up for a year or my financial situation was different? Would that have made me a worse CEO? What it meant was that I wouldn't have been. one. So we want to put seed capital in at the beginning we limit how much the founders can take as salary because it's not you know, it's the only restriction on the use of funds but they're limited to 50k salaries per year the idea is you know be able to cover your expenses but not to feel comfortable with it once right. you go raise additional money then they can they can take additional salary and all of that but but this is also part of how we're trying to open up the pool of founders because there are how many really great founders are out there are just economically not in a position where they can take the risk.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So now we're just, now we have greater likelihood of getting the best talent to run our companies. And, you know, you look at our first three companies that we've done and the people that are the founders of those companies. I mean, it's very validating for the process.
1: That's cool. Yeah. In two years, you've got three. That's, that's pretty good. So it's a really interesting concept. You also, you source opportunities and decide on those first and, and then you source the entrepreneurs and match them up. So where do you source your opportunities, your, your concepts?
0: So there's a few channels we investigate there. So we do internal ideation and we have Alessandro Rinaldi, who's the innovations director. He runs that part. He basically, he's a Stanford guy. So he has an MBA from Stanford and he, he basically took what they teach and preach at Stanford and built a customized version of it uh, uh-huh. here at Launch Factory that we run. So it's a very structured, disciplined process where you, on one side, you look at at market problems and you see if you can move towards a solution. And another side, you look at solutions and confirm whether or not they actually solve a problem. But it's a very involved thing that he runs. The other thing we look at is tech transfer. So, So my previous company was tech transfer. So we have some comfort level there. And then, you know, we are all entrepreneurs here ourselves. So there's also the opportunistic engagements that we're willing to consider. So yeah. And we're looking, and we're we're going to be doing four companies in 2021.
1: Yeah, so really exciting and really interesting. And let's go back to the entrepreneurs. Although I know every situation, every opportunity, and every entrepreneur is a little different. Are you starting to see and something about the people that are that you believe are going to succeed versus the ones you don't? that you're, you know, you're starting to see some trends in terms of the way that they approach things or the way that they think about things or their behavior, anything that you might share with our listeners that you're starting to learn, or maybe you knew it already, but you're starting to see confirmed from all this work that you're doing, really in kind of determining who is going to be successful in these roles.
0: So one of the things we've noticed when you look at our process, so it starts off with a very large pool of people. So last year, for example, for two companies, we had 222 people enter the process, over 500 registered. And so so you get to see in, in the down select at the beginning happens you know, pretty aggressively. And you end up with, you know, what you see of the founders that make it farther through the process. There's something that switches as you look at their submission as they go through. So at the beginning, everybody's kind of the same in terms of the level of effort that they're putting into this, mm-hmm. right? And th- there's excitement and it's all in that, and it's, it's a positive, but but the level of effort is, you know, across everybody, you know, fairly, fairly similar. And you can tell when you look at these things and you can also tell we do, sometimes we do, we'll do occasional surveys of, you know, anonymous surveys of how many hours are you working on this and all that. Cause we're also trying to make it such that people can apply for our positions and also maintain their day job. So, you know, all of that, but what you see in the, whether for the ones that make it, in the later stages something clicks and they have they have just really developed a passion for this and so now they move from being interested to being driven and all of a sudden they are they take emotional ownership they basically have already decided this is what they're going to be doing they are going to be running this company and it's going to be their company which is exactly what we want you know it is their company we're one of the few startup studios that gives the founders majority equity stake and we do that because they are founders of the company. They need to be. If you don't give them the equity, then you're treating them like like a regular employee. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them the the responsibility of a founder. You need to give them both the authority and the responsibility. So so you see this shift happen, and it's hard to hard for me to articulate. But once you see that happen, and you see how driven they are, how passionate they are for building this business. It's not the same thing as being opinionated about how the business needs to be done. It's being passionate about making this business into something successful. And those people, they start to shine. They also, the effort they put in goes up. And some of this ends up being a bonding effect that happens with their co-founders. And what's been interesting, we actually had one of the finalists this last time around, uh, these two guys, not likely candidates to be partnered up, but but resume-wise were perfect. Right. So one was really strong in business. The other really strong in engineering. And so we actually got a thank you letter from them after the fact because they're best friends now and they never would have met each other. And I guarantee you they're going to go start a business if they haven't already. I mean, these guys are just natural entrepreneurs, but that's the kind of thing that happens is somehow they get in a situation where they really see themselves in the role and they are driven and passionate about it. And those are the ones that are ultimately going to win out because skills and talent, they're great. But if you're not going to actually use them, if you're not going to apply them because you're not as interested, then you're never going to.
1: Is it a requirement that they are part of a team and do they come with that team or do you put that together as well? Or is it a mix?
0: It's a mix. So people can definitely come to the table with their own partners. What we have seen out of the three companies we have, so two companies. We partnered them up and one company, they brought their own partner. So what we see is the people that partner themselves are more likely to partner poorly because they just pick their best friend who is exactly like them in terms of skill sets and everything else. And the really good partnerships are where where they bring very different skill sets to the table.
1: Sure, sure.
0: And it doesn't mean they have to be friends socially, but they need to be able to be highly productive together in the work environment.
1: Yeah. Build trust and mutual respect and all of that required. So we are eight months, nine months, I don't know, into a pandemic now. (laughs) And it's affected all of us. I mean, worldwide, it's affected entrepreneurs everywhere. What's been the impact of COVID on what you're doing and on your companies? Any significant challenges there?
0: We've been very fortunate. We were already set up for remote work. That's been the biggest change. And we were fairly nervous and we have a whole incubation process and everything else that we do. So we were a little bit nervous of how that was going to go. How do you really, you know, do all this work and support them if you if you don't see them? But, you know, it actually hasn't been that bad. And a lot of this is actually credit to the, the founders themselves. I mean, they are, they we're all, you know, working remotely most of the time, but you make it work. It's not actually decreased their productivity at all, as far as I can tell anyway. So that part's been fine. It does impact our thinking in terms of Timelines, and we'd always started with this notion. Part of the reason why it's three hundred thousand dollars, we want our companies to have a two-year time frame before they need to go raise additional capital. And so, so think about our first company. We started them in September of last year, so they're basically you know, just over a year old now. Imagine being those founders. You start yeah. in September, and then you go in, and COVID happens, and, and you probably all. If you look at everything that was in the you know the news or the startup world, it was you know, basically go home because you're never going to raise a dollar again kind of thing. But, you know, they were in a situation where their their funding time horizon was not, they could wait a year to raise money and things are still okay. And that's basically what they've done. So we really have stuck to our guns of of making sure that we have plenty of runway. And then also, you know, really being thoughtful about how do you show progress without spending dollars to get there? And, you know, our first company, OmniSync, they've really been, very scrappy and entrepreneurial. You know, they've now have 40 something paying customers got their first customers in, you know, after the downturn happened. So, so you can build a business even in this COVID environment, but you're going to have to probably work a little bit harder to do it. So we've been, we've been very fortunate. There's not been significant negatives for us as a result of
1: COVID. You know, interestingly, I think those situations are the times when the most creative solutions are developed. And sometimes things you wouldn't even be, you know, that's, I mean, we've learned that from back in the earlier dot bomb, you know, too much money too soon can be a big problem as well. So, you know, it lends itself to creative solutions when you don't have it. So you talked about remote world, are entrepreneurs facing a paradigm shift? You said you're looking for a big 2021, I think. Do you think we're going to be You know, kind of back to business as usual, or do you think? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be more remote and and that that kind of use of technology. I mean, we've advanced in our use of the average person has advanced probably six years in six months because of this. But do you see a new normal for entrepreneurship? You know, is it going to be? What are the next few years going to look like for us? And and is that going to be a permanent change?
0: So I don't know. I learned a while ago that I'm not necessarily good at predicting the future. I can have an opinion of what I think it's going to be, but it doesn't always turn out the way I thought it would. So what you do instead of trying to predict the future is you try to be prepared for the future. And in the COVID world, that means this has been, you know, it's not been, well, COVID has not been good at all. But if you look at for some of the silver linings, it's reinforced this notion of building a fundamentally strong business as opposed to something where it's you know, financially weak, but you're just going to keep taking investor dollars and you build up the giant house of cars and hope to sell before it falls apart. Those kinds of businesses, this has been a big reminder that that's not actually, you can get lucky. Some people get lucky sometimes, but that's not a good strategy. And so I think there's going to be, so even if we get into a situation where say next year, you know, all of a sudden COVID somehow magically gone. I do think and even if all of our daily practices go right back to normal, What I do think will stick around, at least for a while, is the reminder that terrible things can happen just in the blink of an eye and overnight, and you can survive them if you aren't overextended, right? If you're prepared, then you can survive and you can even thrive. And so I think that'll actually be a net positive for entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I was having a conversation with someone last week, and he was talking about what he calls the full leg theory. And he said he was driving around one day, saw the lake, and it was, you know, they had drained it to do some work. And what he realized was there was a lot of crap and things on the bottom. And he said, "What it's the way business is. A lot of times a, a really good economy can cover up all that stuff, but those problems are still there. And when the, when the lake gets drained, it's a great opportunity to really refocus on discipline. So, it's kind of a time I think, where people have to hold discipline, especially cash flow discipline and say- and focusing on sales, which needs to be you know your most important, i think, in most cases <laughs> source of cash, and at the same time be really creative like you were talking about so it it's it's kind of a time to hold that right and left brain kind of activity together. And maybe that's why the the idea of the lone entrepreneur that you talked about being a myth, you know, it's going forward, it's going to continue to be because some of us are better at the discipline and some of us are better at the creativity a lot of times. So, when we come together with others, we can maybe deal with that. Brad, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I could talk a lot longer, but I know you've got things you got to do. Get out there and get some businesses built. And I'm really excited to see what happens with the Launch Factory. And before we go, I always have a, a last couple of questions that I ask all my guests. And the first one is, if there was one piece of advice you could leave with our listeners, knowing that a lot of them are our students, a lot of them are, you know, early stage entrepreneurs, what would it be?
0: So I would say really good entrepreneurs are, so any business, you're going to have problems every day, right? There's the sky is falling, terrible things, and you're really good entrepreneurs. They always are focused on the solution, right? And so they don't get stuck and lost in the problem. I mean, you need to understand your problem really well if you're going to have a solution, but you are always going to be in a situation where you are not able to keep up with, with all the things that are coming at you every day. So what are the solutions that really matter? If you can nail those, then your business can, You know, other things can go wrong and you'll still be okay.
1: Yeah, it's great advice. And I like what you said earlier, that if you can plan ahead a little bit on how you're going to react to those things, that can take away some of the stress. So focusing on solutions and planning ahead. Where can our listeners find you, find the Launch Factory, learn more about what you're doing out there?
0: So our webpage is launchfactory.com. All is one word, and we have a newsletter there that we send out once a month. It's a great way to keep up to date with what we're doing, when we're, you know what our new companies are when we announce them, or anything else that's going on. So you can sign up for our newsletter. You can also you know, we're on LinkedIn, and you can you can find us there as well.
1: Thank you, Brad. This has been great. Say hello to my friends out there in San Diego.
0: Will do. Good talking with you.